Well, please turn with me in our Bibles this evening uh, to 2 Samuel chapter 1, and we're beginning our reading this evening at verse 17. Second Samuel chapter 1 at verse 17 in the church Bibles you'll find this on page 254. <clears throat> and David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan his son and he said it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. He said, Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places, I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen, and the weapons of war perished. When a loved one dies, uh, there will be an immediate wave of shock and all the emotions that come uh, with that news. And life involves grief. Uh, it involves dealing with separation of loved ones and dealing with the hardship of loss. But when we think about grief, it is not simply the immediate reaction to the news of loss or to the news of death. Grief passes beyond that immediate moment and becomes something of the ongoing uh, environment or the ongoing condition that we live our lives with. Now we live with the loss that is before us. And this evening we are looking at uh, David's reaction uh, to hearing about Saul and Jonathan's death and how he deals with the grief and how he instructs us uh, to live in response to it, how we are to live in remembrance ultimately of what we have been given. And this evening we want to see that extraordinary love is to be remembered. You will remember that Saul, or that David, uh, was not part of this battle. There was a battle between the Philistines and the Israelites. 
But David ultimately was removed from that equation. Uh, the commanders of the Philistine army didn't trust David, who had found refuge in the land of the Philistia while Saul was pursuing him. They knew that this was an opportunity for David to uh, be restored and to be uh, looked as a hero in the land of Israel if he was to betray them. And so he was not allowed to fight in the battle. But when he returned to where his uh, family and his uh, army's men uh, were settled in Ziklag, they discovered that their people had been taken captive uh, by raiders and that they had to go in pursuit of them. And ultimately they did. And the Lord caused their uh, efforts to prosper and they recovered everything that was lost. But David did not fight in this battle and he was three days journey from the battle. And so he ultimately was dependent on a report, news to come to him to tell him what had happened on that day. And you remember how last time we looked at how a report did come uh, to David. And Amalekite came to him telling him that Saul and Jonathan were dead. The Amalekite thought that he was bringing good news to David because this meant that David could now become king. He thought that by bringing this news to David, it would benefit himself. And so he himself was taking advantage of this whole situation. But you remember how David and his men reacted to it. That instead of rejoicing, we're told that they tore their clothes. They visibly expressed grief over the loss of Saul and Jonathan. And it tells us that they fasted until evening. These men were mourning over the loss of their king. But this evening we want to look at what happens after that. It tells us in verse 17 that David lamented a lamentation. And we are to understand that this is something distinct from what is happening back in verse 12. That this is not simply dealing with the immediate reaction of David. But rather this is David reacting in a more thoughtful way. We may not use the word of lamenting in our everyday usage. But to lament uh, can be described as thoughtful grief. It is, it is not simply the spontaneous outburst of emotion of sorrow, but rather it is more of a reflective and expressive grief that has thought over these issues and now puts them down into writing so that they can be read, so that they can be taught to others, so that they can learn, uh, be learned by others ultimately. And you'll notice that that's ultimately why David wrote this lamentation. In verse 17, it tells us that David wrote this lamentation ultimately to teach. He wanted to teach the people of God how to think through their grief. He wanted to lead them through their sorrow and to help them to do so in faith. And so this evening, we want to think about how David expresses lament over the death of Saul and over the death of Jonathan and uh, to see uh, their uh, how he moves us forward in the midst of great loss. The poem itself is called, uh, is uh, said there in verse 18, it should be taught to the people and behold it is written in the book of Jashar, which can also be translated of the upright. Uh, but this book uh, was a book that seems to be a collection of ancient uh, poetry. Uh, it is mentioned in other passages in the Old Testament. Uh, these writings have been lost over the course of time, 
but they seem to be writings that were uh, to, to teach the people uh, much of their history and to help them to make sense and to live uh, to the glory of God. And so this poem is to be included in that collection of writings. But David here is uh, instructing or intending for this to help the people of God. Well, what is this lament? Uh, you'll notice uh, that it is a lament over the loss, but also over what has been given. It is first a lament over what has been lost. And you see that in the very structure of the poem. Three times in these verses, it describes for us how the mighty have fallen. You see it in verse 19, then again in verse 25, and then again in verse 27. That really sets the theme of this whole poem. It is thinking about how the mighty have fallen. And we might think that maybe this is referring to the nation of Israel or all the warriors uh, who have fought in battle. But as you read on, you begin to realize that David is singling out in particular King Saul and his son, Jonathan. They are the mighty ones. They are the warriors who fought for their nation. They are those who defended their people. And it is to them in particular that he is thinking about as he expresses this grief. He says, uh, tell it not in Gath in verse 20. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You see how things have changed. Earlier in David's life, he went and fought with that giant of the Philistines, Goliath. And you remember how when David beat Goliath, that it brought forth songs of joy from the women of Israel. They celebrated how David had fought and had slain his tens of thousands, that David had fought valiantly for the people of God, and it caused the people of Israel to rejoice in song. But now it is, the tables are turning, and now it is considered how the Philistines are rejoicing over what has taken place. And when David says, let this not be published in Gath, let it not be made known in Ashkelon, David is not actually thinking that this might not be reported back in Philistia. But rather he is saying he can't bear to think of it being reported back in Philistia. You'll notice that in this lament that David doesn't actually explicitly speak about God. And yet God is right there under the surface. Because as he speaks about how he doesn't want this to be published back in Philistia, he says, let not the uncircumcised exult. Let them not rejoice over this. And it's not just that he's saying, I don't want to think of the Philistines celebrating their victory. But he calls them by what they are designated, the uncircumcised. The uncircumcised in the Old Covenant was a way of designating those who were not part of the people of God. The Philistines were the uncircumcised. They were those who were separated from God. They were those who were living as enemies of God and his people. And now as David is contemplating, as he's reflecting on what has just happened, what bothers him so much is to think that the Philistines are going to go home and celebrate but worse than that, they are going to celebrate and give tribute to their God. They are going to celebrate thinking that the God of the Philistines has conquered the God of Israel. And that stirs within David. 
You remember that when David went uh, to encounter Goliath, what was it that spurred the whole thing? He heard Goliath taunting the Israelites. And what did David say in response? He said, who is this uncircumcised man who comes to defy the armies of the living God? David recognized that he was confronting with and uh, accusing and slandering the God of Israel. And now as David is thinking about what has just happened in this battle, what does it mean? He is thinking these people are going to think that their God has triumphed. This is something that is bringing shame. This is something that is going to uh, look as though our God has been defeated. And that brings grief to David, even as he is reflecting on Saul's downfall and Jonathan's death. He goes on in verse 21 and he says, you mountains of Gilboa, that is where the battle was fought. He says, you mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you. As one person has said, he's just asking that even nature itself would go into mourning. Don't bring any refreshment on the ground. Because what has happened is something terrible. And there should be no refreshment as a result. Even when Christ was on the cross, it was like nature itself was mourning, wasn't it? Because darkness was over the land from midday to 3 p.m. There was a sense in which nature itself was mourning what was taking place. And now David is saying, the death of Saul is something that should cause even nature to be abhorred by. This is something that should not be simply embraced as, well, that's what's supposed to happen. David is saying what has happened is something terrible. Our leader has fallen. Israel now has lost their king. And the reputation of our God has been smeared. And so as he is lamenting here, he is thinking not just about the loss of a battle, but he is thinking about the reputation of his God. He is thinking about an event that smears uh, the glory of God, ultimately. And so he says that even Mount Gilboa should not bring any refreshment as a result of what has happened. He says, for there the shield of the mighty was defiled. The shield of the mighty, uh, speaking again of these mighty warriors, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. In the ancient world, they would fight with leather shields. And those shields uh, would be studded with metal plates. And those shields would be anointed with oil. And that would happen so that it would become more deflective of weapons being shot at it. But it would also make it harder for the enemy to grab hold of the shield if they were in hand-to-hand combat. But you notice what David is saying here. The shield of Saul is no longer anointed. The shield of Saul now lies on the battlefield. And so David is just, he's just dwelling on what has happened. Our king is dead. This is something that we shouldn't just embrace as natural. Something that just comes and goes. But something that we should look at and say, this is not the way things are to be. Death, when it is a death of a loved one, is something that causes us inwardly to shout out, this is not right, this is not natural. And David here is sorrowing over the death of the mighty. 
He says, from the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. These were men who fought for their nation. And in the end, they were united. They, they fought to the end together, protecting their nation and fighting for their nation. He tells the women uh, to weep over Saul because it was through Saul that the nation prospered. They had success. They enjoyed prosperity on account of the leadership of Saul. And you see how David is holding up the good virtues of Saul. He is setting before them that there was good that was done through Saul. And so he is leading them in the way of lament because there has been loss. And they have to now recognize something terrible has happened. They had a king and their king has fallen. But you'll notice in verse 25, there is that refrain, how the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. It might sound like it, the poem is coming to an end. David introduced this poem by saying how the mighty have fallen. Then he explains the significance of how the mighty have fallen. And then he comes back to that idea as if he is wrapping up the poem itself, saying this is something that we need to dwell on. But it's not the end of the poem. In fact, it simply leads or transitions to an even more weighty matter for David. Because as much as he wants them to realize they've lost their king, he also transitions to help them lament over what they have been given in Jonathan himself. And really this poem, as much as it makes allusion to Saul as their king, this poem is about Jonathan. It's, it's speaking about the bow. It's speaking about the one who is like a gazelle, the one who is, is Israel's champion. And here he is moving on to Jonathan in verses 26 uh, to the end. It is Jonathan that he laments over uh, uh, in verse 26. He says, I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. Jonathan and David were brothers. Uh, David married Jonathan's sister. So you could say they were brothers. They were brothers-in-law. But that's not what David is referring to when he says, you're my brother. He's talking about the brotherhood that existed between them. There was a bond between David and Jonathan where they lived like brothers should where they were supportive and encouraging to one another. It is an allusion to the covenant that existed between David and Jonathan. And you remember, as we've gone through the book of Samuel, how it talked about what a covenant is and this relationship that existed between the two of them. There was this bond that was set up between how Jonathan would treat David and how David would treat Jonathan's descendants. What did Jonathan vow in that relationship? Perhaps the central thing that Jonathan vowed was is that he would stand aside. That Jonathan would not lay claim to the crown, even though his father was king. Jonathan said that he would not get in the way of David becoming king. And so this covenant relationship between the two of them was marked by Jonathan's self-denial, that he was sacrificing any claim 
to the crown himself. He was getting out of the way in order to make room for David to become king. In fact, not only did Jonathan say, I'll get out of your way, David, but Jonathan actually became the greatest supporter of David on the pathway to becoming king. That Jonathan even made a vow to David saying, your enemies, David, will be my enemies. That Jonathan was so committed to David that he was willing to embrace David, David's concerns as his own concerns. And so this bond existed between David and Jonathan, where he was willing not only to deny himself for the betterment of David, but also that he was committed to David's success. You remember how on one occasion, Jonathan went out to David in the wilderness, and he went to encourage David, assuring him, saying, you will be king. Someday you will be king. And Jonathan did that because he was appealing to God. He said, it is between the Lord that the vows that they were making, he was making appeal to God. He was seeking to honor the Lord in everything he was doing. From denying the crown himself to encouraging David, he was doing it to the honor of God believing that David was the Lord's chosen one. So Jonathan's concern was to honor the Lord in the way that he treated David. As he says in 1 Samuel 20, the Lord is between you and me forever. So this bond that existed between these two people was one that was formed to the glory of God. It was one that was shaped in light of God's promises to David. And David and Jonathan showed this remarkable commitment to David. And you notice there in verse 26 how David is expressing his grief. He's lamenting. He's thinking over what has been lost. Yes, we've lost a king. But Jonathan's love was something precious. He says, your love was, he says, very pleasant you have been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. That word for extraordinary, as the the King James translates it as wonderful. And wherever you find that word extraordinary or wonderful, whenever it's used with respect to God in the Bible, it's talking about God's cosmic wonders. It's talking about God's achievements in history. In other words, it's talking about something that is beyond human ability. It's something that only God can do. And in the passages in the Bible where it's referring to man, where it's talking about humans, when humans do something that is wonderful, something that is extraordinary, it is being used in the sense that it is beyond our ability to comprehend or to understand. This is something that is too great to grasp. And here, as he's reflecting on Jonathan, he says, Jonathan has been precious to me. His love has been wonderful. It is something that is beyond my ability to understand. When David goes on and he says, it is something that surpasses the love of women. David is not saying anything romantic. That completely misses the point. What David is saying when he says, Your love surpasses the love of women. 
He's talking about the extraordinariness of Jonathan's love. What was so extraordinary about it? What was so hard for David to understand about Jonathan? It's that when he thought about Jonathan, Jonathan laid aside the crown for him. And Jonathan not only laid aside the crown, but he was committed to David. He supported David in all things. And so as David thinks over these things, he's saying, how is it that Jonathan would do such things? And we know why it is. Because 1 Samuel tells us that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. That what Jonathan was doing was something that was inspired and directed by God himself. That his soul was knit to David. When you think of knitting, you're thinking of the interlocking of yarns together. There's a bond that now comes together. So that Jonathan didn't just think about his own interests. He was committed to David's interests. Everything was about David. And here's David remarking on, you don't see this kind of love anywhere else. Not even in the love in a, in, with women do you see someone being willing to lay aside their crown in order to serve another and to serve the very one who you would think is your rival, the very one that you would be hostile towards. Jonathan was willing to serve and to treat as the closest friend. That's what Matthew Henry points out. The famous commentator, he says, He had reason to say that Jonathan's love was wonderful. Surely never was the like for a man to love one who he knew was to take the crown over his head and to be so faithful to his rival. This far surpassed the highest degree of conjugal affection and constancy. Jonathan's love was wonderful because he was willing to deny so much and willing to support David to the end. And he did it because of his belief in God's purposes. Why is David lamenting this? Why is he wanting to teach the people of Judah this lamentation? Yes, he wants them to understand that they had a king and that king has fallen. He wants them to understand their loss. But David wants them to understand what has been given to them. He wants them to be able to look to the purposes of God to be sustained. An extraordinary love was given in Jonathan, which is highlighting the purposes of God. And it is the purposes of God that is to sustain them. Maybe that's why we don't lament very much or we give expression to our lamentation. Because as one person has said, the more we love, the more we grieve. And the more we grieve, the more exposed we are, and the longing for comfort becomes greater. And the more we see our longing for comfort, we are pushed to where can we find that comfort. And David here, in teaching the people of Judah to lament, is teaching them to look beyond their circumstances for support. You need to look to the purposes of God. You need to see the love that has been given and shown. And ultimately, David is showing them 
that, that God's purposes continue beyond, David, uh, beyond King Saul himself. He wanted them to understand Jonathan's love, but he also wanted them to understand God's purposes. So there is the expression of lament in the loss of mighty leaders. The mighty have fallen. But there is also the expression of lament as he contemplates the wonderful love of Jonathan. But all of this pushes us to think about where do we look to for comfort? What is to sustain us when we have faced real life, a real loss and death? We can say it is by looking not just to mighty ones, but to the almighty one that ultimately there will be mighty ones in our life who will be taken from us. And we will be pushed to look to one who will not fall, to God himself. But we can say more than that, because it is not just recognizing that God is almighty and he will never fail, but it is looking to God who in his extraordinary love has given us hope. Because God's love is wonderful. God's love is something that is unmatched and unparalleled. And we see that in the Lord Jesus Christ, that Jesus came into this world to show God's love. As we were reading in Romans chapter 5, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We are to live in remembrance of God's love because it reveals to us God's purposes. Not only has God's love been revealed to us in Christ, but God has raised Christ from the dead, which gives us that hope and that sustenance, that sustaining strength to carry on. Because God's love that has been given to us is also the sign of the end of lament itself. That there will come a point when there is no more reason to lament. Because for those who have come to believe in the love of God in Christ, they know that nothing can separate them from that love. And therefore there is a hope because God who is almighty will bring an end to all loss and death. Our hope is ultimately looking at the purposes of God. They carry on even in the midst of our loss. The people of Judah were to look at their loss, not to ignore that they have lost their king, not to carry on as though nothing big has just happened. They were to realize that they have lost something great, but to look to God's purposes to prevail. They were to be sustained, recognizing that an extraordinary love has been displayed, which points them to the purposes of God. David is the Lord's anointed. God's purposes carry on. And in the same way, even when we face, are faced with loss, we are to be sustained by looking to God's purposes in Christ, to see the love that God has shown to us, and to believe that there is coming a day when all lament will be over. So it comes to a point where we say we will face with grief and life. The question is, is have we learned to grieve in faith? Have we learned not just to sorrow over pain, but have we learned to lament with hope? Knowing that hope produces that character. Knowing that hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured in our hearts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that as we think over uh, this uh, poem of your servant David.
We pray, Lord, that in our grief, in our sorrow, we would be able to look to you in hope, being uh, directed by your love, being directed by uh, the wonderful love of God in Christ, and being able to live with hope in the midst of loss. So go before us, we pray, and direct us by your spirit. In Jesus' name.